turn to James chapter 4. We're going to finish up chapter 4 today. Like I said um, earlier, we began this walk through James a couple of years ago. Um, been going kind of through it verse by verse as I've had opportunity to preach. And so we're going to finish up chapter 4 today looking at the last few verses starting in verse 13. But before we get to that, I want a show of hands. Who is, who in the room is a planner or likes to know the plan? You know, a bunch of us, okay? That's not unusual. Um, we're going to look at a passage today in James that talks about making plans. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, our family vacations rarely ever went according to plan, okay? It was comical then, and it's become kind of a running joke um, when we're with my parents as we reminisce and talk about vacations in the past. And funny enough, I think it still holds true for my family today. Inevitably, things will derail somewhere along the way. Shortly after our anniversary um, Charity, my wife and I, we flew to West Africa where my parents were living at the time to Togo to see them and to visit with them. We spent some time there and then on the way back, my parents flew with us up to Europe. We spent about a week um, traveling around parts of France and Switzerland. And we were, we had, this was long before internet, okay? Long before GPS and all that kind of stuff. So we just had paper maps, and we kind of had our plan where we were going and what we were going to do. And we had made plans one day to kind of have a picnic lunch somewhere up in the Alps. We were just going to kind of drive and find a place to enjoy a nice lunch in the mountains. And so we are um, driving along, unable to find really anywhere to even pull off the road. These are just small mountain roads, you know. We finally find a place where there's a, a, a cutout where we can actually get the car off of the side of the road thought you know we've been driving around for a while it's time to eat we're hungry let's just pull over here we'll sit on the side of the hill next to the car and enjoy our lunch so we did we sat and enjoyed our lunch as cars drove by us all looking at us like we were crazy well we got back in the car after eating lunch we got back on the road and I kid you not around the next corner was this beautiful flat ground picnic area with tables restrooms the whole nine yards right around the corner and I think that it was at that point that my mom and my dad and myself we all looked at charity and we said welcome to the Verlander family vacation um, we like to make plans we not we like to know where we're going what we're going to do um, and so there's right ways and there's wrong ways to do this. And this is what James is going to talk to us about today. So let's dive in here. I want to start by reading this passage. If you would uh, read with me um, from your Bible as I read out loud um, from James 4, chapter, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Let's pray. God, as we begin to walk through this and as you show us your desires and your will for us when it comes to making plans, God, give us ears to hear. And my prayer today is that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So let's start to walk through this. James starts off with, again, some strong language. He, he's used strong language with these people that he's writing to um, throughout the book, and this is no different here. Come now, is, it's a strong term that means listen up. It's only used one other time in the entirety of Scripture, and James uses it in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. James here is being quite abrupt and he's being very insistent. He's saying, I want you to get this and I want you to get it good. He's addressing, as we talked about before, he's addressing these brothers and sisters who have been scattered out of Jerusalem um, into a variety of areas and he's writing to them to encourage them and he's giving them, giving them these tests of faith that they can examine their lives, look at their lives, and see how it is that they are living. Now we know, we've said this over and over and over again, we are not saved by works. Okay, That is clear from Scripture, that we are saved by faith in Christ, by His grace alone. Okay. However, James also makes it very clear that our works are a demonstration of our faith in Christ. And he goes on to say that faith without works is dead. And so this is another example of James kind of breaking this down for his readers, for us today. He wants us to get this and he wants us to understand it. What he goes on to say when he says, you who say, that's a phrase that is indicating that what they are saying is something that they are habitually saying. This is a regular occurrence. They're saying this on a regular basis. It's a habit for them. So what, they're, what are they saying? He goes on and he gives that to us. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spread and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is painting this picture here. He's using kind of an illustration of a businessman. This is a picture of a typical merchant, typical businessman involved in commerce involved in trade of some sort. Many of the Jews in the ancient world were traders. They were businessmen and they were very successful. As towns would spring up in the ancient world um, or as they flourished and grew, traders would go to these places because these would become places of intersection where um, people from a variety of countries would come together. And so they would go to these places. They would become focal points of business Um, And they would set out to do trade in these types of places because they knew that there was likelihood for success. The phrase that they use in what they're saying here, we will go, this is in the indicative mood, which is, in other words, what they're saying, they're saying these things as statement of fact. There's an undaunted determination in their statements that nothing is going to go wrong. Their plans will not be thwarted. These are businessmen in full control of the future 
as they make their destination plans and as they plan for their profits in those places. Now, you may be asking, what's wrong with that? Isn't it good to make plans? And I will say, yes, it is good to make plans. And I'll, I'll repeat that several times as we walk through this today. It is good to make plans. Scripture is not against making plans. James here is not against making plans. We see it throughout Scripture. God made plans for the temple. The Apostle Paul made plans. I want to, I want to share a couple of those. He made plans often regarding his travels. In Acts chapter 15, he It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word and the Lord, the word of the Lord, sorry, and see how they are. So he made these plans. He had these intentions to go and see these people. First Corinthians 16, five and six, he's writing to the church at Corinth. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I would suggest that in fact, making plans or setting goals is a key to success in any venture that we may undertake in life. But what is going on here that James is addressing is wrong because there is this hyper self-confidence that shows a total disregard for God. The plans that are being made here completely ignore God and leave Him out. Now, Scripture talks a lot about plans, particularly in the Proverbs. A couple of examples, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So again, Scripture is not telling us not to plan. We should make plans, but how we do that is key. So as a reminder, James is painting this picture here of a business person. And they have constructed this whole plan of operation based on what James says. But what you notice in their statement is that there are no contingencies. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city. Remember that phrase, we will go. That's a, they're making that as a statement of fact. Okay? We will go into such and such a city. We will stay there a year. We will do our business and we will make money. That's pretty confident talk. Again, their fault is not in making plans. Their fault is that they're going about it the wrong way. What's the wrong way? They're ignoring the will of God in their plans. So James walks us through two options that we have when it comes to making plans. There's a right way, there's a wrong way. We're going to start off talking about the wrong way that I believe James is accusing some of his readers of of doing and participating in. And that's our first point today. When we make plans, we can ignore God's will. And as we'll begin to see, I think as James is going to make clear to us, to plan this way is foolish. Why? We'll see four reasons that I think we can gather from this text. And the first one is because life is complex. I think we all understand that. We all recognize that. Life is rarely ever simple. When's the last time you came across a simple project? 
we like to think that they're simple or you, you buy something that says, you know, easy to do, anybody can accomplish it. You know, if, if, any, if you've ever spent any time at Ikea or bought any Ikea furniture, you, you know that's not the case. Life is complex. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Even just in their statement, there are complexities that show up. There's complexities of time. Today, tomorrow. What, what may go one way today, we know good and well, may not go that way at all tomorrow. There's also complexities of activity. They're going to buy, they're going to sell. You know, what, what sort of things are going to be done if and when you get there? If you've ever started a project and you, you start making decisions going down that road, thinking about how something is going to be laid out and how you're going to work through it, you realize that the more decisions that you have to make, the more mistakes that become possible Today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read portions of Matthew Henry's commentary to us because I, I spent a lot of time kind of looking over some of, some of his commentary on this passage and it's just, it's really key and I think he makes really amazing insights. And so bear with me as I read through some of this. Some of it's Old English so you got to listen carefully because it was written in the early 1700s. But needless to say, it's, it's really good. So this is where he starts with this. It says, how apt worldly and projecting men are to leave God out of their schemes. Where any are set upon earthly things, these have a strange power of engrossing the thoughts of the heart. We should, therefore, have a care of growing intent or eager in our pursuits after anything here below. So he's saying we have to be careful about our earthly pursuits. How much of worldly happiness lies in the promises men make to themselves beforehand? Their heads are full of fine visions as to what they shall do and be and enjoy in some future time when they can neither be sure of time nor of any of the advantages they promise themselves. Therefore, he says, observe, take note, how vain a thing it is to look for anything good in the future, without the concurrence of providence. So what he's saying is that it's pointless to look for anything good in the future without God. He goes on, almost as, as I read this, you can almost hear him kind of poking fun at, at these guys who have made this statement in James. We will go to such a city, they say, perhaps to Antioch or Damascus or Alexandria, which were then the great places for traffic. But how could they be sure when they set out that they should reach any of these cities? Something might possibly stop their way or call them elsewhere or even cut the thread of life. Many who have set out on a journey have gone to their long home, their eternal destination, and never reached their journey's end. But suppose they should reach the city they designed. How did they know they should continue there? Something might happen to send them back or to call them somewhere else or to shorten their stay. Or suppose that they should stay the full time they proposed. 
Yet they could not be certain that they should buy and sell there. Perhaps they might lie sick there. Or they might not meet with those to trade with that they might have expected. Yea, suppose that they should go to that city and continue there a year and should buy and sell. Yet they might not get gain. Getting of gain in this world is at best but an uncertain thing. And they might possibly make more losing bargains than gainful ones. Planning in this passage in James is not James' concern. Imagining that we are in control of what happens is the problem. A second reason why planning this way is foolish is because life is uncertain. The opening word of the Greek text in verse 14 is the word why. Not the question, but a statement. And it's not typically seen in most English translations. But I think a good translation here is why you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And again, I think James is being strong in his wording here. It's, it's like he's insinuating here, who do you think you are? You don't know what tomorrow holds. No one has a guarantee of tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that there will be one, much less what will happen. Only God can bring about what He wills for the future without fail. And so since this is true, we should certainly desire to make plans that are in keeping with His plans. Third reason why planning this way is foolish is because life is frail. People being addressed by James here are forgetful of the frailty of life. Look what he says in the second half of verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist. He likens their life, compares it to visible smoke or water vapor. Now if this last year and a half has reminded us of anything, it has reminded us that life is frail. How quickly we can succumb to sickness or to an accident just shows us how frail we really are. James uses the illustration of a mist here to, de- to demonstrate the frailty of life. And Scripture uses this in other places as well. Psalm 39.11 says, Surely all mankind is a mere breath. How substantial is a vapor or a mist? It's not substantial at all. It can't hold anything up. Now, I'm not suggesting this or condoning this in any way, but if you've ever watched someone smoke a cigarette, smoke that's blown from their mouth or nose is seen for just a moment. It's not substantial. It can't hold up anything. James says the same about our lives. Therefore, it is foolish to think that we have the strength within ourselves to make our plans happen, which leads to the fourth reason why ignoring God's will when making plans is foolish and that's because life is brief. Last part of verse 14 says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Life is short. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. A mist can disappear suddenly by a change in wind or a change in temperature. Scripture speaks a lot of this as well. Psalm 39, 5 and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. 
Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Job 9, 25 and 26. Job says, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. Job says again in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And then a New Testament example, John, 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Matthew Henry goes on to say this, And then as to all these particulars, the frailty, shortness, and uncertainty of life ought to check the vanity and presumptuous confidence of such projectors of the future. God wisely left us in the dark concerning future events and even concerning the duration of life itself. We know not what shall be on the morrow. We may know what we intend to do and to be, but a thousand things may happen to prevent us. We are not sure of life itself since it is but as a vapor, something in appearance, but nothing solid nor certain, easily scattered and gone. We can fix the hour and minute of the sun's rising and setting tomorrow, but we cannot fix the certain time of a vapor's being scattered. Such is our life. It appears but for a little time and then vanishes away. It vanishes as to this world, but there is a life that will continue in the other world. And since this life is so uncertain, it concerns us all to prepare and lay up in store for that to come. Another commentator said this, in Psalm 1-4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away in contrast to the righteous who stand firmly planted. Isaiah described people who oppose God as being blown away like chaff before the wind. He says the biblical concept is that human life is utterly dependent on God and completely incapable of standing before God's judgment. James would impress upon us this critical piece of knowledge that God is the one who sustains our lives, that each day's 24 hours are not ours automatically, that God controls time and gives it as one of His good gifts, and that we would already be blown away in God's judgment were it not for His mercy. The biblical worldview is that we receive another day not by natural necessity, not by mechanical law, not by right, not by courtesy of nature, but only by the covenanted mercies of God. You and I, we are here today only by the mercy of God. The very breath that we breathe, every minute that we live is a gift from God. So to make plans by ignoring God's will is not only foolish, James goes on to say in verse 16 that it is boastful arrogance. 
J. Alec Motcher writes this, James is not trying to banish planning from our lives, but only that sort of self-sufficient, self-important planning that keeps God for Sunday, but looks on Monday to Saturday as mine. To plan without taking into consideration God's will is ultimately to set ourselves up above God himself. How could one be more arrogant than that? I want to read to you a passage from Jeremiah that I was reading this week. Some of this will be familiar, um, but just listen to this and see if this sounds at all familiar to our world today. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. That was God's word through Jeremiah to the people. Listen to their response in verse 12. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans and we will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Does that sound at all to you like the world that we live in today? The one thing that they had going for them is that they recognized that they had evil hearts. I don't think people today do or they ignore it the tragedy in that is God warned them God told them to turn from their plans to trust his plans and yet they refused and it resulted in exile in Babylon for 70 years The people that James addresses here have not only disregarded God, but they have flaunted His will. There's a kind of arrogance here that is sinful, and that's our next point. To plan this way, to plan without regard to the will of God, is sin. And James talks about this boastful arrogance. And this boasting is warned of 
over and over again throughout the scriptures. I want to read some to you. Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 94, 4. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And then in Paul's letter to the Romans towards the end of the first chapter he reads out writes out this laundry list of evil that the people are involved in just listen to this list they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanderers haters of God insolent haughty boastful Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We like to boast. The world likes to boast about our accomplishments. And yet, the scriptures refer to that as evil. 1 Corinthians 13.4 in the famous love chapter It says this about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Listen again to Matthew Henry's commentary. We we are directed to avoid vain boasting, he says, and to look upon it not only as a weak, but a very evil thing. They promised themselves, the people that James is writing about, they promised themselves life and prosperity and great things in the world without any just regard to God. And then they boasted about these things. Such is the joy of worldly people, to boast of all their successes. Yes, often to boast of their very projects before they know what success they will have. How common is it for men to boast of things which they have no other title to than what arises from their own vanity and presumption. Such rejoicing, says James, is evil. It is foolish and it is hurtful. For men to boast of worldly things and their aspiring projects when they should be attending to the humbling duties before laid down is a very evil thing. It is a great sin in God's account. It will bring great disappointment upon themselves and it will prove their destruction in the end. If we rejoice in God that our, time, that our times are in His hand, then all events are at His disposal and that He is our God in covenant. This rejoicing is good. The wisdom, power, and providence of God are then concerned to make all things work together for our good. But... If we rejoice in our own vain confidences and presumptuous boasts, this is evil. It is an evil carefully to be avoided by all wise and good men. Boasting of one's own power and accomplishments is evil. 
the Christian is to boast only in the Lord. Now James goes on into verse 17 and this is an interesting verse too because he shifts his emphasis from whether we know God's will to whether we do God's will. Failure to do what we know to be God's will is the same arrogance that James has been describing in knowledge and attitude. And now it's carried out in behavior. So to make plans while ignoring God, while ignoring His will, is sin because we as Christians know better. We know what is good, which is to plan with God's will in mind. To do otherwise is sin. So we've looked at the wrong way to plan. And now we'll shift directions and look at the right way that James gives us. You may have noticed that we skipped over verse 15. We're going to go back to that now um, because that's where James addresses this. And we'll start to wrap up. We can ignore God's will. Or secondly, we can submit to God's will. Verse 15, James says, Instead, instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this or that. It's imperative, Christian. It's imperative, believer in Christ, that we submit our plans to the will of God. We can make our plans, but we should make them contingent to God's approval. If the Lord wills wills and again i want to read some of what scripture says about this because paul paul uses that phrase numerous times in his planning in acts chapter 18 paul was in ephesus and was preparing to leave and the people didn't want him to leave acts 18 21 says but on taking leave of them he said i will return to you if god wills and he set sail from ephesus In Acts 21, Luke and some of the other people that were with Paul were trying to discourage him from going back to Jerusalem. 21.12 says, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. In his communication with the church in Rome, Paul says this in Romans 1, 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In some of his closing words in the same letter, um, Paul says this, I appeal to you, my brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company couple others he mentions in the book of first corinthians 419 he says but i will come to you soon if the lord wills 
So he had plans. He had intentions to do these things. But he trusted his plans to the will of his father. For I do not want to see you just now in passing, he says again later. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. One last portion of Matthew Henry's commentary I want to read to you on this verse. Listen to what he says. If the Lord will, we shall live. We must remember that our times are not in our hands, but at the disposal of God. We live as long as God appoints and in the circumstances God appoints and therefore must be submissive to Him even as to life itself. All our actions and designs are under the control of heaven. Our heads may be filled with cares and contrivances. This and the other thing we may propose to do for ourselves or our families or our friends. But providence sometimes breaks all our measures and throws our schemes into confusion. Therefore, both our counsels for action and our conduct in action should be entirely referred to God. All we design and all we do should be with a submissive dependence on God. Isn't that good? The life of reliance on God runs far deeper than the words that we say. I want to I talk about what James says, this if the Lord wills for just a minute. Care should be taken to apply James's words deeply and honestly. First of all, here it would be a superficial spirituality to think that James' instruction is fulfilled merely by sprinkling our speech with Lord willing. But at the same time, we should not judge those who do use this phrase if it is done humbly as a way to keep oneself reminded of God's sovereignty, it can be a godly practice. A dear friend of ours who served as kind of our supervisor when we first moved to Wales um, years ago, he used this phrase all the time. But he did it in such a way that was humble because he recognized who was in charge of his life. He recognized that his life was in the hands of someone else. And I was awed by his humble approach to life. I mean, even, you know, we'd have a meeting together and we made plans to meet next week for coffee. He would say, Lord willing, I'll see you next week. A life of reliance on God that runs deep. But the flip side of that, secondly, is that it would be a deformed spirituality to apply this by refusing to do any planning. I think James here in verse 15 affirms the validity of planning because he talks about, Lord willing, we will do this or that. (coughs) 
The spirituality that James wants for us is a humble reliance on God which flows from knowing that we are in reality dependent on God for every moment. Every single moment. And so I want to start to kind of wrap this up. A couple of concluding thoughts here. How do we make our plans? According to James One, we can plan without considering the will of God. And if we do so, then we are foolish, arrogant, and sinful. Or, we can make our plans subject to the approval of God. Which according to James then, we are wise, submissive, and righteous in God's sight. In some of my reading as I was preparing over the last few weeks, I came across a a blog post that was talking about this passage and this topic and kind of want to hit on some of the things that I read in that because I think it was very practical um, in how we approach life and how we make plans. He said, by all means, make and live in good plans. But don't let plans become the object of effort and faith. Rather, learn to rest in God's will. God gave plans for building the temple. God is into good plans. James is not saying to ditch plans. James is addressing the attitude of our hearts regarding how we live out a well-planned life within the will of God. Plans can't become our hope, our trust, or our security. With the speed of change in our world today, even the best leaders in the world are reluctant to make and implement plans beyond a year. There's too much change with too many variables to forecast too far into the future. This is an interesting statement that he makes here. Listen to this. For the world in general, I'm convinced that the growing speed of change is a built-in frustration from God to combat men's arrogance. Think about that. Chew on that for a while today. Our individual and corporate abilities for increased efficiency have outstripped our ability to make long-term plans and we keep trying to do it. So we keep working harder to make things happen at a breakneck pace that leads us into an unsustainable cycle in which we will crash and burn. Let that not be us. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight said these words, And just let this speak to you today. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath times are essential. Constant activity is not from God. It's not. He created the world in six days and then He rested. Rest. Wait for the Lord. Simplify. This is an interesting take too. Sobriety, he says, about who we are should lead to simplicity in everything we do so that others can come along and run in our footsteps if needed. Think about that. Who are you investing in? Who are you teaching? Who are you imparting skills to? that they might come along behind you and step into your shoes if needed. 
We all ought to be about that. Because life is not guaranteed. If I'm not here tomorrow, somebody steps in. If Doke's not here next Sunday, one of us will step in. We have to be about that. Training, teaching, imparting skills to people. We need to learn to delegate. A lot of us are not good at that. Because we want, we want to do our thing because we think, you know, we can do the best job. If I, if I leave it to somebody who's less experienced, the job's not going to get done. I'm going to come in behind them. We have to let those concerns go. And we have to let people grow and flourish. He goes on and says, we need to get narrow and go deep in everything. We need to, to discover God's metrics for success. To hear Him and obey Him. This will require courage to go against the grain of a world that scoffs at what God considers success. Just this summer, we had plans in June to go as a church to Little Rock, Arkansas. We had 60 people lined up ready to go. Been planning for better part of two years because we weren't able to go last summer. We knew where we were going to stay. We knew what meals we were going to eat. We knew where we were going to eat. We knew what we were going to do in service for the kingdom. And 10 days, 10 days prior to that trip, God shut that door. So what do you do? I mean, we had always, you know, we'd made plans and we'd always held them loosely. But 10 days out, we were like, what do we do? We have 60 people ready to go. And when God closes one door, as we all know, He often opens another. And in 10 days, He orchestrated an incredible mission trip back to Mississippi where we've served on numerous occasions. And the 60 of us that had planned to go to Little Rock headed down to Gulfport, Mississippi. And we got involved in ministries that 10 days prior, we had no idea we would be doing in fact, some of the plans that some of the plans for that trip were in process as we were driving to Mississippi. But it was amazing after that week together to see what God did in and through us. Projects that we hadn't prepared for, people that we didn't think we were going to be working with. What he did in and through us to bless people in and around Gulfport, Mississippi was incredible. We make plans, but we hold them loosely because we know that God is sovereign and God is in control. And we want His will to be done. One of the things that we hammer into our mission teams every time we go is flexibility you got to be flexible because inevitably what you think is going to happen won't. 
Be flexible. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that he's putting you in this place for this time, for this reason. That's how we should live our lives day by day. We make plans. It's good. It's wise. But we do so with God in mind, with His approval. As believers, it should be our desire that His will be done. Jesus Himself taught His disciples to pray to that end. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me?